Thank you, music worship team. What a wonderful time for us to come this morning and to be refreshed in spirit as we uh, sing praises to our Lord, reminded, are reminded of his great faithfulness and love for us and our hunger and thirst for him. And this morning, I would ask that you would open your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to read the first 10 verses of Matthew 18. Stand, if you would, as for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the power of your word. And Lord, we thank you for this revelation that you've given to us even now, Lord, that we as your children can come to you as our Heavenly Father. And Father, that our faith can be even as that as a little child. And you will receive us and declare us as part of your kingdom. And so this day, Lord, we would pray that you would impress upon us the power of your word. Open our hearts that we might receive that which you would have for us this day. For your glory and for your sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm, a, um, I'm an expert on children. Most of you may know that. I have um, five degrees of ch- childrenness between Cindy and me and uh, ten degrees of uh, great-grandchildness. And uh, so we know everything there is to know about children. So if you just want to know anything, ask, and we shall be happy to tell you. Um, most. But uh, the reality is that um, there are a few people that aren't really enchanted by little children. I really had to discipline myself this morning. I came this close to bringing just pictures of my grandkids. <laughs> just almost did that. But when you see a little kid, I mean, especially the cute variety, you know, um, they just melt your heart, don't they? I, I've never met anybody that just didn't like kids. I mean, you read about them in those you know, old Scrooge-type guys in the books. But reality is that we love little children, especially when they are, that they're, that they're cute, when they're, when they're charming. Okay, there are times when we don't like them, but that's what moms are for, right, guys? <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I, 
there's nothing like walking into the nursery. You know, I get one of those pass and get, back, get past security in the nursery there and sneak in between uh, services and I check on the grandkids, you know. And I, I walked in uh, about four weeks ago. I think little Ezekiel was maybe uh, 10 months old. And um, uh, he was in the little pre-toddler group, you know. And he's in scooter stage, whatever the scooter group is. And uh, I looked over that little half wall there, you know, half door. And he's off in the corner, and there's some other kids crawling around. But he looks up, and he sees me, and his eyes light up, you know. And he just starts scooting, you know, as fast as he can go. And he comes right over the door, and he holds his hands up. And I pick him up, and, hey, there's nothing better than that, is there? I mean, that is what, that is the best thing in the the whole world. Those of you who are grandma and grandpas can experience that, know what that's like. And uh, I just wouldn't trade it for anything. There's just something about kids that grabs our hearts. And I think God impressed that in us for that reason, uh, that, that for, for his purpose. And uh, if we see a little one that, that's uh, suffering uh, or, or hurting, we, we'd do just about anything to help that little one out, wouldn't you? It's no wonder that I think that the two of the largest ministries in the whole world, um, World Vision and Compassion International, uh, minister to the orphaned and the sick and the, and the homeless and abandoned children makes you um, not surprised that so many of you have given up your time and of your energy to serve in service to little kids, working in the nursery, helping out in vacation Bible school, because you know that there's an opportunity to minister to, to little ones that are, as Jesus said, the very kingdom of God. And uh, I guess uh, most of you know uh, by now that even our daughter Rebecca has a huge heart for ministry and for service and for little children. And um, a few weeks ago, uh, Cindy and I and uh, her sister-in-law and uh, brother went to her home and uh, we helped her pack up the last of her things and had a little garage sale and sold pretty much everything that she had. And it was kind of a weird experience. And uh, she's had a few boxes left and she's getting ready to go. She's going to go to Dominican Republic and um, this church is helping to support her. She's going with Kids Alive. She's going to work in an orphanage. Um, in the school there and help to administrate the school and work with these little kids that are desperately poor, that many of them don't have moms and dads. And most of them can't, can't go to public school because in the little village of Monte Plata where she's going to be, uh, you've got to have, to go to the public school, you've got to be able to wear pants and, and a shirt and you've got to have shoes. And, and if you don't have the, the right uniform, you, you don't get to go to public school. And so she's going to go and minister to these little poor kids. And, and walk away from her teaching job. And that's not surprising this church. Many of you have done similar things. Uh, uh, to work for a short time, sometimes for longer than that, a lifetime, in helping little kids. In Matthew chapter 19, just a chapter uh, past this, uh, the disciples had, had tried to stop the little kids from approaching Jesus. And he said, don't stop them. Permit the little children to come to me. He says, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You know, it's an amazing statement that uh, it doesn't say that the, that the kingdom of God belongs only to children. Now, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? All the kids are taking over. <laughs> They're in charge now. No, but he does say the kingdom of God belongs to people who are just like children. And it is only those that are truly like children that can come to him. 
Well, in Matthew chapter 18, if you look at that passage that we read earlier, it starts out with the disciples coming to Jesus. And it says that that time, verse 1, that the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, this isn't, this isn't the only time that the Gospels record that the disciples, especially for some reason, James and John were, were arguing ahead of time, undoubtedly, who was going to be great in God's kingdom? You know, who was, when Jesus brought his kingdom to earth and, and took over the world, that who, which of them was going to set at his right hand and which was going to set at his left? It kind of reminds me of the, uh, of the uh, campaign workers, you know, arguing over, you know, who's going to get the choice appointments when their candidate is elected. Well, they were arguing about it, and um, Jesus responds in a very interesting way. Crowds all around him, as usual, and uh, kids are following him along with moms and dads. Maybe even some kids snuck away from home just to go see Jesus, and these little kids around him, and he, he pulls one over, puts this little one right in front of him, and this description here this, that we find here uh, is, is probably indicates that this is a very, very small child, not very big at all. And uh, he says in verse 2, and he called a child to himself, and he set him before himself. He set him before, the child before him. And he took this little child. He says, well, let me tell you about what it means to be great in God's kingdom. Let me tell you a little bit about what it means to uh, be someone who is really the epitome of what I look for in my kingdom. In fact, maybe even only those who end up in my kingdom. Well, who are the children that Jesus is talking about here? Well, in a, in a sense, he is talking. In fact, literally, he's talking about a little child. But notice here, he says in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does this mean? He's talking to us here. He's talking to his disciples and using this little child as an illustration of what they need to be like. You want to be great in God's kingdom? You need to be like this little child. He says, unless you are converted to become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, not only do you need to be like this little child, but you need to have the kind of faith, the kind of conversion experience that this little child has had. Undoubtedly, Jesus knew the little child that was standing before him had followed him either alone or with his parents because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe he couldn't articulate in those words, but he knew that Jesus was the one who would save him. And he said to his disciples, you need to be just like this little child. What Jesus is saying here is that we need to come to him with this very same kind of faith that a little child has. This is a little bit different than what we often think about. We'll explore that a little bit more as we, as we continue to look at this passage. But this is the kind of faith that is so simple and so basic that it's absolutely stunning. What do you think a little child thinks when he or she comes to Jesus? A little four-year-old, a little five-year-old, six years old. You think they understand? Oh, the um, incarnation fully? Could they talk to you and exposit the scriptures? Could they tell you what, it, what the substitutionary death of Jesus is all about? Well, not exactly, probably not. 
No, all they know is that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And somehow, it's that level of simple, pure, childlike faith that is sufficient to be saved. In fact, not only is it sufficient, but there's an element of that kind of faith that is required for us really educated adults to have in order for faith. Jesus didn't say, you've got to learn more, you've got to go through this catechism, you've got to take these classes, you've got to attend church this long, you've got to know and have heard this many sermons, you've got to understand this much doctrine. No, he doesn't say any of that. He simply says you need to come and to believe just like a little child believes. No baggage, with no analysis, with no great theology, just simple belief that Jesus came to save those who seek him. So I want to look at this morning four things that Jesus says in this passage about that childlike faith. It's not all that he says, but it's all that our time is going to give us to look at this morning. The first thing I want us to see is that conversion and childlike faith go hand in hand. There, there, there is, you can't separate the two. We can't come to Christ based on our intellect, our experience, our, our insights into Scripture, or our adultness. We must come to Him as children. It's not like, let's tack this on to our adulthood. No, we must come to Him as if we were children. Well, what, what is He talking about a little, really, here? It doesn't mean that we have to come and um, become um, literally children again, um, or to enter early into our second childhood. We can wait for that, can't we? No. But let's think about it. Let me give you some childlike attributes for us to think about this morning. First of all, um, m- most children have no guile. You know, they, 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 they don't maneuver to look smarter or, or more worthy. Um, uh, what you see for most, in most little children is exactly what you get. Uh, okay, some uh, at a very early age might try to shine you on, right? They might try to manipulate you just a little bit, especially the female variety. I can speak personally. I know what it means to be wrapped around the little finger of a three-year-old. I understand that. But when it's all said and done, they can't fool you for very long, can they? Little children, are what you see is what you get. They're the simplest, wonderful, loving people in the whole world. Children just have no guile. And secondly, children uh, simply believe what they're told, at least at first. Uh, They take things at face value until they learn otherwise. Uh, I guess that's why I I probably should be careful about teasing little ones. I I might have been guilty of doing that a time or two and probably will do it in the future, you know. I I love to tell little little kids, you know, when they come over and they want to go swimming, "Uh, Grandpa, can, can I go swimming now? Uh, well, sure you can. Uh, you can swim all you want, but be careful. Don't get wet. And I'll go run up right to the pool. I'll stop. Oh, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> they, then they figure out, well, I think it's okay. Uh, uh, Grandpa's just teasing me. But they believe what they're told and they listen. And so we need to be really careful about what we tell those little children, don't we? Yes, you can go swimming. And... and they have an implicit trust, in, in, in especially in moms and dads. Um, 
sometimes kids will do amazing things because they trust their parents. Um, we just came back from a couple of weeks of vacationing and uh, had a wonderful time. We had all, all the kids and the, and the grand, all 10 grandkids camping and uh, we're together about a week and uh, some of the little ones, the five-year-olds are learning to ski for the water ski for the first time. And um, as it's becoming a little tradition in our family, I started when I was uh, teaching our kids how to ski, we, we wouldn't just throw them in the water, uh, we'd get in with them, you know. But um, we, before, even before that, we'd get in with them and we'd put on double skis and we'd put the kids in our laps and, and then we'd just take off with the kids in our laps and they'd hold on to our arms and they're dangling down there like this, you know. <laughs> and uh, the other kids are, uh, are watching. When I do that kind of thing, that looks pretty scary, you know. And little Zachary, he's Aaron's little five-year-old, he's looking at this and he's saying his, in the first part of the week, no way, I'm not going to go keying. Well, no way. <laughs> I'm not going to key. I don't need to do that. <laughs> not today. <laughs> and Aaron's so patient. He's way more patient than I ever was. But he'll, uh, he, the next day Aaron says, uh, I, uh, Zachary, you want to you go skiing? And he says, okay, Daddy, today I'm going to go keying. And he, and he gets in the water with his dad. And he's so scared. He's shivering, not just from the cold, you know. And he gets hold of dad's arms and he puts his feet on those skis and they say hit it (laughs) and up they go and Zachary's hanging down like that and he's keen I'm keen you know and afterwards he says boy that was fun (laughs) that's the best thing I ever did but what kind of trust does that take it takes a huge amount of trust doesn't it to think that Dad's going to take care of it. They don't really understand the power of the boat or the, really what the water can do to them, but they trust Dad. That's so what kind of faith that, that Jesus is trying to tell us that we, we need to have in Him. Sometimes we can't know. We just have to trust Him to do the scary stuff. Well, kids also have a God-given sense of what's right. They know they're supposed to do good even when they disobey. You know, um, some of you may have told, heard me Say goodbye to little kids around the church and my own grandkids on occasion. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? See you later. You be bad. And um, inevitably, the little ones will say, what? What do you think they say? Oh, no. I'm going to be good. Oh, no. I'm going to be good. I'm not going to be bad. I'm going to be good. And you'll say that to them. And sometimes I'll do this, this, you know, until it's about two years old, three years old, you'd be bad. No, I'm going to be good. Four years old, five, oh, no, I'm going to be good. And then one day, I'll say, you'd be bad. And they'll turn around and they'll say, okay. <laughs> you know, that I think might be the age of accountability. <laughs> but they know from an early age what's right and what's wrong. Only later do they begin to manipulate and learn to, to, uh, from the world that as the world tries to confuse them between what's right and wrong. And finally, uh, few children resist the message of the gospel. Uh, They receive it simply and fully with no reserve. They don't need doctrine or systematic theology or even four laws. They just need to know that they fall short of the glory of God, that He loves them, that He has paid the price for their badness. That He gave His life for them. They need to know that they can come to Him. They need to know that they can touch Him. You know, in sharing the gospel with a little child, I've yet to hear a little little child who can begin to understand the gospel respond cynically. 
are questioning me. Uh, Noah and the flood? <laughs> You've got to be kidding. Have you ever heard that from a four-year-old? I, I don't think so. Daniel and the lion's den? <laughs> no way! I haven't heard that either. Or, or the story of the loaves and the fishes? <laughs> Couldn't have happened that way. And, and, and the hero of that story, that little boy? <laughs> oh, well, God only uses adults. No, kids don't hear it that way, do they? They say, yeah, of course. Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah, yeah, I believe that, of course. And that's one reason why uh, every parent, certainly Cindy and I, were eager to share the gospel with our children from the earliest age. And those of you with really, really small children, you can't wait till they're just old enough to begin to hear the truth of the gospel. You don't wait until they finish their college. You don't wait until they're educated. You don't wait until they can read. You don't... No, you just want to do it as soon as they can begin to understand Jesus loves you. Somehow, somehow that's enough. You know, childlike faith and conversion go hand in hand, not just because they're connected somehow, but because that really is the kind of faith that saves us. Secondly, childlike faith is not something that is in a moment. Childlike faith lasts a lifetime. It's the mark of a true believer. Look at verse 4, and it says, excuse me, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice the condition here. You shall not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a children. I would suggest to you that the, 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 the wording here doesn't, doesn't just say, okay, we're going to become like a child in a moment in time, and then, okay, I'm done being, and then I'm going to come to Christ, I'm going to be saved, and then I can go back to being an adult. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, no, you need to have this kind of ongoing faith that never stops trusting me, that never stops believing me, that never stops the simple, basic almost elementary understanding of the power of the gospel, even as a child. We must be converted and become like children. You know, in 1 John, I I love John later in his life, he speaks to the believers and he constantly in the gospel of, uh, excuse me, in the book of uh, 1 John, uh, refers to the believers as little children. He says in in chapter 2, I'm writing to you children because you know the Father. Conversion uh, is not only, uh, re- does not only require a, a childlike faith, but conversion lasts a lifetime. Childlike faith lasts a lifetime. Thirdly, childlikeness enables true humility. Notice verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, Who's the greatest? Remember the disciples? In particular, undoubtedly, James and John, two brothers, the sons of Zebedee. They come to Jesus and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus answers the question. I'll tell you who's greatest in the kingdom. The one who humbles himself as this little child. He's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be great? Be like this child. Well, that um, demands then that we think a little bit about what is, 
childlike humility look like? Because I, I don't think there's very many children in the world, if any, little tiny ones that have thought a whole lot about what it means to be humble. Little children don't give a whole lot of thought as, okay, how can I be more humble? I need to work on my humility. You haven't met a little child that says, I want to be the most humble person in the whole world, like some of us adults do. No, little children are just humble because they're humble. Well, what does that exactly exactly mean? Well, keep in mind that uh, the idea behind uh, humility is the opposite of arrogance. And, and, uh, and we're warned in Scripture, James especially, that we're not to, we're not to uh, be arrogant. It means, uh, uh, it means coming to Jesus completely empty-handed like a little child who has nothing to bring and knows it. Somehow at the deepest level, a little child understands that he or she doesn't have anything to bring. There's no trade-off here. I'll give you this for that. Uh, I'll study a little bit more. Uh, I'll, I'll do more good works. Uh, I'll make myself somehow worthy. No, a little child doesn't, under, doesn't understand what we adults understand. You've got to do something. A little child just comes to Jesus and understanding that Jesus is going to give him something that he has nothing to trade for because that's a child's whole life. A child has nothing to trade for anything. A little baby has nothing to trade for its food or its clean diapers or place to sleep. It just takes and believes that mom and dad will care for him. Children possess, I think, a distinct form of humility. Uh, in some ways, they're the most powerful people in the, in the whole world. You know, a, a, a cry of a child will wake a mom or dad out of the deepest sleep, or at least mom. <laughs> and an inner child or a lost child will turn whole communities upside down. When that tragedy happened in Minneapolis this last week um, with the bridge collapse, uh, I think the um, news spent more time on that bus that didn't go over than just about anything else. And the whole nation breathed a sigh of relief in the midst of that terrible tragedy because the bus didn't go over, the school bus with the children in it didn't go over too. You know, uh, children are, in a sense, the most powerful people in the world, yet at the same time, the child understands that he is absolutely dependent upon mom and dad for everything. And they know it. And even when a child begins to feel like he or she can move away from mom or dad for a moment, the minute they realize they're alone, there's panic sets in. Listen, I remember the, one of my earliest, earliest childhood memories is the time in the store when I got separated from my mom. You know, you hear in the PA system, you know, lost child, come get your kid. Well, I remember, you know, I was one of those lost children and the panic that I felt being alone for that very first time. But what's even more destructive, I think, than arrogance says that we must humble ourselves as the child. I want you to look at this passage a little more closely. Maybe the worst form of uh, arrogance, the opposite of humility, is to look down or despise someone because of their simple childlike faith. Notice verse 10. We're not going to look at this whole passage, by the way, this morning. We're only going to go through verse 5. But I do want you to look at verse 10. It says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Well, there's a lot to this passage we don't have time to look at, but notice here it says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
What does that mean? See that we don't look down on them. You know, there are plenty of believers who are not very sophisticated in their faith. Um, Some of us who are more Bible-educated could easily look down on those who don't know as much of the Scripture, who don't understand the deeper truths of God's Word as we do. You know, my own dad, he's going to be 90 next month. Um, As he gets older, uh, his faith gets simpler and simpler. You know, today, um, I'm not going to ask, I get into a deep theological discussion with my dad. But if I ask him, do you love Jesus? He says, absolutely, yes. You know you're going to someday be with him? Absolutely. Do you trust him as your Savior? Yes, I do. Um, So can we talk a little bit about um, propitiation? Uh, Not today. You know, don't need to go there. You know, have you ever thought negatively about someone who had simple faith? Thought maybe has crept into my mind from time to time. Maybe that person couldn't exactly prove from Scripture the deity of Christ or discuss the difference between premillennialism or amillennialism or um, why immersion is the biblical pattern for baptism or uh, the difference between postmodernism and rationalism. Or uh, maybe that person can't exactly explain the Trinity uh, in in all its glory and detail. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not sure I can fully either. (laughs) You know, that level of sophistication is not necessary for salvation. To require some higher level of understanding than a child needs to know, to be saved now, to enter his kingdom, is to require that we all be able to function at some particular intellectual level. Ultimately, it translates into we must do something other than simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You know, Paul's faith was as simple as it gets at some level. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know, the Lord hasn't called many noble and many wise. He's called the simple to come to Him. Well, let me, let me just say as an aside real quickly that it's, it's not okay then uh, to remain ignorant of the deeper glorious truths of God's Word when we come to Him, even as we continue in our faith, our childlike faith. The Bible does tell us to leave the elementary teachings and to press on to maturity. It does uh, tell us that we're to grow up in all aspects of Him, um, that we're to continue in the things that we've learned to become convinced of that uh, Paul tells Timothy, that uh, we should continue to study God's Word to be approved. And that all Scripture is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He tells us, God's Word tells us in First Peter, that we're to be ready to defend the faith and the hope that is within us. And yet, none of this added knowledge, none of this maturity that God calls us to adds one iota to our salvation. You know, the thief on the cross who never heard a thing about the gospel other than Christ was the chosen one and that his death would somehow save him, he was just as saved as the most highly educated theologian of his day. Maybe he was saved and the theologian wasn't. And the child who comes to Christ and and believes in him never knew most of those glorious things that we as mature believers have gotten to feast upon. 
But God calls us to come to Him with the ch- that simple childlike faith and to keep coming to Him. You know, in some ways, the gospel is the simplest message the world has ever heard. Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. All who acknowledge their sinfulness and repent and believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And yet the gospel is the most complex, unsearchable, and mysterious truth the world has ever heard. And we will never in our limited human understanding fully search out the mystery of the gospel. The Bible tells us that the gospel of Christ is unfathomable. Those riches are unknowable. We need to be careful here. For even those of us who have been immersed in God's Word our entire lives, that revel in the riches of His glory and His revelation, that none of that makes us more saved or more worthy. God has given us His revelation that we might glorify Him and understand Him and know Him more fully. Not that we can become more worthy to be saved. Well, why do we need such childlike faith? Well, let me just give you a couple things here this morning. First, for things we can't understand. We need faith for things we as adults, sophisticated adults, just still can't understand. Like, why bad things happen to good people? Why, 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 do, things, why do people who love Jesus get cancer and die? Why, why is there illness and sickness for those who love Him? Why is there financial hardship? Why, when people have loved Him so fully and completely, that they, they still suffer, suffer greatly in life? Well, Jesus said that we would do that if we follow Him. But ultimately, we'll never fully understand that. We simply need to trust Him with a childlike faith. We need to trust Him with a childlike faith in those times when um, the outcome of really scary things are completely unknown to us. When we enter into a business venture, we don't know the outcome. When there are strained relationships and we're not sure how it's going to turn out. When there's great disappointment in our lives, even in our own children. We need to trust Him with a childlike faith. In 1 John, it tells us, chapter 4 and verse 4, you are from God, little children, and, and, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. In the truest sense, the only way that we can rid ourselves from this false sense of being in control is to come to Him even as Jesus when He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before He went to the cross. He prayed, Lord, take this cup from me. And he cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus used this most intimate term. It used to bug me when I hear preachers, you know, uh, say this, you know, this Abba, Father, it's like translating Daddy. And, and that kind of, of, of uh, personal connection with the Lord, reference to Him, kind of bugged me a little bit. You know, it just seemed too um, informal. And as I've studied this, though, I've realized that um, this isn't about being informal with God, be casual, buddy-buddy with God. Jesus called out, Abba, Father, because He was expressing His deep and total dependence upon His Father. Lord, You and You alone 
I'm like a child. Only you can help me through this situation. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I'm powerless. I'm not in control. Well, ultimately, childlike faith results in true greatness, as he tells his disciples. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I want to just leave you with this this morning. Um, when uh, one of the uh, greatest Christian writers in the 20th century was C.S. Lewis. Many of you have read C.S. Lewis. Know, uh, and then have read a number of his, his great theological works. Many of you have probably read Mere Christianity or Screw Tape Letters or many of the other works of C.S. Lewis. But um, maybe, at least for me, his greatest work was a series of uh, children's stories called The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, how many of you have read Chronicles? Yeah. How many of you read to your children? Many of you. I know that when our kids were just old enough to understood being read to, we were pulling out you know, the, lion, the lion, the witch, and the, and the wardrobe. And uh, we read all the stories to them, you know, all the way through, uh, Don Treader and all the rest. And the kids would listen. And when, when the next one came, was old enough to begin to understand, they would start over again and would read the Chronicles. Why? Because that's such a powerful picture of God's love for us. You remember, um, you remember uh, um, when uh, the, the, four, the four, four children in the story, you know, uh, Edmund, Peter, and Susan, and Lucy, and, and Edmund had treacherously betrayed his brother and sisters. And um, the, the evil witch, the white witch, was demanding payment according to the laws of, of Narnia. And um, Aslan says to the witch, uh, Aslan uh, the lion says to the witch, his offering was not against you. Have you, not forgotten, have you forgotten the deep magic, asked the witch? Let's say I've forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us this then, tell us this deep magic. Tell you, says the witch, tell you what is written on the very table of stone which stands beside us. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey and that for every treachery I have a right to kill. And so, continued the witch, that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Well, I think we all know who the witch represents, don't we? And so Aslan makes a secret compact with the witch. His life for Edmunds his life for the traitors. And later the story tells us how the crowd bound Aslan and they mocked and they humiliated him. Muzzle him, said the witch, and even now as they worked about his face, muzzling, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands, but he never moved. At last the witch drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid but a little sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won, you fool? Did you not think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, so, was and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take 
him out of my hand then. Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. And then the story goes on and says the evil witch plunged the knife into Aslan and he breathed his last. This is a kid's story. Does it capture you? Man, it grabbed me, huh? I found myself rereading this again as I prepared for this. And later, uh, in great, great sorrow, uh, Susan and Lucy, they, they go back up onto the hill where the stone was laid and where, where, where Aslan had died. And, and they were looking around in great sorrow. And, and then they turned and they looked back over the hill at Narnia. And at that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. Lucy says, come on. And she turned, pulling Susan around with her. And for a moment, they didn't see the important thing. And then they did. The stone table was broken in two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. Oh, it's, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their back. It's more magic. They looked around and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. And later, Susan asked, what does it all mean? It means, says Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawn, she would have read there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself, itself would start working backwards. You know, in Luke chapter 10, it tells us, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And if you recall, it, the disciples rebuked, him, rebuked them. And Jesus, when he saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. It is the little child who hears this story and maybe understands it better than you or I could ever understand. It is the little child who hears this story spoken in this symbolic terms and understands somehow that the witch is Satan and that Aslan is Jesus and that he died for me. And they receive that and they believe. God calls us to childlike faith. He calls us to a faith that is simple, he calls us to a faith that doesn't have to know all the answers, that doesn't have to understand everything. He just calls us to trust Him completely and to come to Him and to say, Abba, Father. Lord, thank You for our time together today. Thank You that um, as many as received Him, the Lord Jesus, to them, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Lord, I pray this day that um, you would increase our trust and our faith in you, not on the basis of our deep understanding, Lord, simply because we trust you as a child. And in that trust, in that unquestioning 
belief in you, Lord. May you then build upon that foundation a knowledge of your riches, a deeper understanding of your glory. Father, not that we might be more worthy, but that we might understand more fully your worthiness. Not that we might be lifted up, Father, but that you and you alone might be lifted up. And may we, in our childlike faith, glorify you more fully in our lives each day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Just uh, challenge you once again that um, you spend a moment and think a little bit about what does it mean to have childlike faith, to come to Him as a child, not just uh, for those of you who have come to Him for the very first time, but for those of us who have known Him for many, many years. Can we renew our faith even as a child? And if you have never come to Him, you don't have to have great theology to come to Jesus. You just need to understand that He died for you. He paid the penalty for you. If you've never made that decision to believe in Him and to receive that which He offers of full salvation, I'm here today. Elders will be happy to speak with you. So be dismissed. Blessings.